The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. One year ago today, a little after 6 p.m., on April 15th, 2019, the Cathedral of Notre-Dame-de-Paris began to burn. It survived but was silenced and held no Easter service that week for the first time since the French Revolution. Twelve months later, we have just had an unchurched Easter worldwide, and almost all houses of worship, from the great cathedrals of Christendom to the more modest structures throughout rural Africa and Asia, are as silent and empty as Notre Dame has been. And disturbing numbers of mayors and governors in the Western world seem inclined to use the coronavirus as a way to target churches specifically. Whatever the cause of the fire, something the French state doesn't seem terribly interested in, whatever the cause, the conflagration is clearly symbolic of something. But what? A few hours after it began to burn, Tucker Carlson and I tried to puzzle out the question of faith in post-Christian Europe. Well, the fire you've just been watching is in some ways a metaphor, maybe, for the broader decline of Christianity in Europe. That decline has been swift and full of unintended consequences. Mark Stein has been studying this question for more than 30 years, and we're glad to have him with us tonight. Mark, thanks a lot for coming on. There's so many things to say about this, but the one I can't get out of my mind is we haven't built anything like Notre Dame Cathedral in the West in so long. We don't build things that are beautiful anymore, maybe almost by design. No. Will there ever be anything built like that ever again? I think we've lost the knack. Uh, Notre Dame is about a 10-minute walk from the Pompidou Center, uh, named for the late uh, President Pompidou. And it is, that is one of the ugly, like almost every modern building in Paris, that is one of the ugliest things uh, you've ever seen. And when you go back uh, eight and a half centuries uh, to the time when this building began construction, it took a, a century uh, for, the, for the first part of it to be completed. Uh, the men who set to work on this knew that they would not see it finished in their lifetime. But the, uh, their, their sense of a transcendent meaning to life was so strong yeah. uh, that the idea of building the most beautiful uh, buildings to the glory of God, uh, they took naturally in a way that we don't anymore. Well, and that, of course, I think is the reason that they built buildings like Notre Dame in the first place, because they were building it not just for their right. own amusement, but to glorify God. So this is not, and we're not, want to be clear, speculating about the cause of this fire, though, you know, it happened, uh, as Trace Gallagher just noted, at, at the beginning of Holy Week, and it is not the only church that has caught fire in France in the last year or uh, you've seen quite a few desecrations of churches. Again, not saying this is one of them, but give us a sense of the scale of what's been happening. Well, well, Christendom is in retreat in, in Europe and uh, in France particularly. France ha has actually quite an aggressive uh, belief in secularism. And uh, according to some polls, 
The French are, even by the standards of the modern Western world, among the, the most godless people in that sense. Uh, three years ago, in that terrible summer uh, that began with the Nice uh, truck killings, and the, when it seemed as if the entire French state was unraveling, I went to uh, Rouen Cathedral for the funeral of uh, Père Amel, uh, the, the French priest who had his throat cut at, at Mass. And I then went to the Basilica of Saint-Denis, uh, which is uh, in the north of Paris, yeah. where the French kings are buried, and, and basically is a, 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 a Christian museum in the heart of what is now a, a Muslim suburb, in effect. Uh, there's no sense of Christianity outside the walls of that cathedral. And it was after that that I went to then Notre Dame, because I, you do have the sense uh, that a living, breathing faith is just becoming actually a museum, an art gallery, a storage facility. And the French who were on the streets in tears this evening, on the streets of Paris, they're not mourning. I don't think they're mourning just history or architecture or art or culture. They're mourning something else. But what that something else uh, post-Christian France uh, can't quite identify it. And that's, that's really the conundrum uh, when Monsieur Macron says, oh, we're going to rebuild it. Rebuild it for what? Uh, when people right, talk about, oh, right. the heart of France has died, what is in the soul of France? What is this? Is it just a building or is it something more? What's it, so interesting about Notre Dame specifically, as you well know, is that it was... Mm desanctified, de-Christianized during the French Revolution right. for a time and was made a, a secular temple, but then it immediately reverted to what it always was, which was a Christian holy place. Will, do you think there's any hope that something like that will happen again in France? Well, I, you never know how these things will go. I, I mean, everyone knows the hunchback of, of Notre Dame, which, the, the Victor Hugo novel, which actually did quite a lot to, to, to restore uh, the importance of uh, Notre Dame in, in the minds of the French people. But, but uh, Michel Welbeck, uh, a, a controversial novelist, he wrote a novel yeah. called Submission, which posits that France elects a Muslim president. And he knows that the central character knows this is going to mean something. And he actually makes a conscious effort to try and recover his lost Catholic faith. And that character goes on a kind of pilgrimage and, and he's moved by it as music and he's moved by it as ritual. But he can't quite make the final step and reconnect uh, with God and the Catholic faith. And that scene in that book uh, is in a certain sense the question raised by this fire tonight. Uh, is it a hole in the soul or is it just a missing building burned to the ground? hasn't made it a better society, the death of Christianity. Tucker Carlson and I, a year ago today, when a fire silenced one church before a virus from China silenced them worldwide. <laughs> April 15th, 2020. <laughs> from my house arrest to yours. It's your Stein Show Corona Copia. Everybody was Kung Flu Fighting. 
Shaq comes move fast as lightning Even their gifts are frightening This face mask keeps untightening Okay, that's enough of that. We did a full chorus on Monday's show. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Everybody knows what's going on there. Indeed. The great question at the heart of this filthy virus these last few weeks is this. Is this a simple humanitarian disaster or something more? As you'll know, if you read the SARS passages from America alone I reposted seven weeks ago, I inclined to the latter view. The WHO is supposed to be one of those UN do-gooder agencies that represents the dispassionate wisdom of the world's experts, uncontaminated by narrow local advantage. Uh, that, by the way, is an American innovation. When it uh, emerged... From the Second World War is the uh, world's leading power, the only one whose cities and factories weren't reduced to rubble. America chose to exercise that power, not as a conventional imperial power such as Britain or France, but through international bodies that, though primarily funded by America, would represent a kind of global consensus. No great power has ever sublimated its power in this way before. So fast forward 70 years to today's WHO. The United States is, as it's always been, the biggest funder. It gives well over 10 times as much money to the WHO as China does. But under China's hand-picked stooge, this Dr. Tedros guy, a third-rate Ethiopian commie hack with no talent for anything other than political thuggery and knowing which side his Swiss savings account is buttered, the WHO has become a wholly owned subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party. You see similar patterns in almost all other aspects of the US-created international system. When the General Assembly had a vote on China's mass incarceration of its Uyghur Muslim population uh, a little while back, a, a few Western nations voted on the merits of the question and against China. But the Muslim nations, whom one would have thought would be most exercised about this, instead said, uh, hey, screw our fellow Muslims, and they voted against China. Because China's bought them up, because they're corrupt, and corrupt people can be bought. But what about countries that aren't corrupt or didn't used to be? Uh, well, as we saw from the NBA business a few months back, uh, they like those Chicom big bucks too. Why are Disney-owned ABC News and other networks owned by international entertainment conglomerates so uninterested in even mentioning China's role in this? Why did Mike Bloomberg, the charisma-free mini-mayor who'll, quote, get it done... Uh, shut down his own reporters' investigations into the connections of high-ranking Chicoms. He certainly got that done and over. Why is Stephen Colbert, the soi-disant edgy late-night host, who's about as edgy as the Partridge family on Ambien, hosting this weekend an A-list celebrity fundraiser for the WHO? The same WHO that lent its do-gooder technocrat imprimatur to China's lies and resisted declaring COVID-19 a pandemic 
uh, until it was in over 40 countries. Why would you do a fundraiser for that? Why is Canada, under its blackface 12-year-old mammy singer prime minister, so craven to chike on propaganda that it dare not disagree with it? Under Justin's blackface, is he wearing his real love yellow face? Because as I've said for months now, enriching China isn't making China more like us, it's making us more like China. One more example. Why are all these A-list celebs suddenly calling for shutting down the Chinese wet markets. I saw Paul McCartney, dear old Paul's, jumped on this bandwagon. Because that's the approved Chicom cover story. The one they're disseminating through Facebook and Google, doing for real what America's half-wit intelligence agencies spent years investigating the Russians for. Fact. The Wuhan wet market doesn't sell bats. Fact. China's officially designated Patient Zero never went anywhere near the Wuhan wet market. Not quite a fact, but tiptoeing awfully close to it. Agencies in both the US and UK governments now think that the notion that this thing escaped uh, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology is not a conspiracy theory for tinfoil hat dark web types, but actually a very plausible theory, and one which, unlike the sock puppet non-wet market designated patient zero, does fit the facts. And here's one final fact. The CDC gave millions of dollars to the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a quote grant. That means if you're listening to this and you have the misfortune, as I do, to be a United States taxpayer, your tax dollars are supporting the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Why? Why are we funding China? China, a country that kills more of its citizens than any other nation on the planet, is on the cusp of becoming the world's dominant economic power. If you think of it in slightly broader terms, than a number with a lot of zeros on it, if you think of it in terms of the essentials it controls, such as medicines and cell phones and laptops, it already is the world's dominant economic power. Why do America and the West still give money to China as if it's a developing nation like Chad or Rwanda? 95% of these COVID deaths would not have occurred had China and the WHO told the truth. They didn't. And so people have died in almost every nation on earth. And in their belated response to the WHO's China shilling, every major economy except China's has shut down with catastrophic consequences. Her Britannic Majesty's government in London reports that the UK's economy will contract by 35% in the second quarter. France, Italy and others likewise. It, it, we are told now it is going to be the worst recession, not since the Lehman Brothers 12 years ago, but since the 1930s. Because something escaped from a communist bio-warfare lab funded by US taxpayers. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Yes, indeed. So far, we've had winners from the Metropolitan Police, Northamptonshire Police, Derbyshire Police, South Yorkshire Police. Today, please welcome to their ranks the Bedfordshire Police. Bedfordshire always used to sound very cosy to me. 
I think it's because the word's got bed in it, so it sounds somewhere nice to go and be tucked up in. But it's policemen are prime wankers. In this case, the central community team, which also sounds very cosy, until you realise it's a bit of classic Orwellianism. Um, the central community team of the Bedfordshire Police put out a tweet at the weekend warning the denizens of Bedfordshire not even to think of leaving their homes. Quote, if you think, if you think that by going for a picnic in a rural location no one will find you, don't be surprised if an officer appears from the shadows. We are covering the whole county. Hashtag urban and rural. Hashtag stay home, save lives. That's not a mispronunciation, by the way. Hashtag stay home, save lives is spelt L-I-F-E-S rather than L-I-V-E-S. People who don't know the plural of life are now in charge of your singular life. Run that by me again. If you think that by going for a picnic in a rural location, no one will find you, don't be surprised if an officer appears from the shadows. And just to emphasise the threat, there are two elongated shadows of a policeman and a policewoman cast on an empty country lane. So the marketing department of the Central Community Team has been a big part of this and has designed a classic Orwellian poster. You know, I seem to remember that there's a phrase for policemen who lurk in the shadows, unseen. What is it again? Oh, yes, secret police. My friends in England keep telling me they've never seen so many coppers since this lockdown began. Uh, when you're getting burgled in a leafy village, when you're getting stabbed on a London street, when you're getting urinated on by your grooming gang and doused in petrol while they dance around you with lit matches, there's never a constable around. But in the new united lockdown kingdom... If you go for a picnic on a bit of scrub in Bedfordshire, there's the manpower of ten squad cars lurking in the shadows. The central community team of Bedfordshire Police are your Brit wanker coppers of the day. Jump out of the hedgerow, lads. Pick up your trophy. If you enjoy these audio editions of The Mark Stein Show, you will love it in video. Tune in as Mark delves beneath the surface in his in-depth, long-form interviews with everyone from authors to actors and prime ministers to presidential candidates. Mark Stein Club members have access to interview transcripts and audio versions of all episodes. You won't find conversations like these anywhere else. Watch The Mark Stein Show by heading to www.steinonline.com. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. We have a special edition of our Song of the Week coming up this weekend. I'll give you more details at the end of the show. Uh, so a fortnight back... 
I mentioned here that a Belgian cat had contracted the coronavirus. His owner came back from northern Italy to Liège and gave it to his moggy. And the Belgian public health guys assured us, no, no, don't worry, this human-to-cat transmission is a one-off, an isolated incident. And then last week, guest hosting for Rush, I discovered that a tiger in the Bronx Zoo had come down with the fever. And when they tested her, it turned out she'd got the coronavirus from her keeper. I don't know how you uh, test the tiger, by the way. I wouldn't want to be the guy who sticks the nose swabs up the tiger's nostrils. Uh, But they wound up testing all the big cats at the Bronx Zoo, and about 70% had the old woo flu. And this uh, disturbs me, because bad things happen when you offend against the natural order. And the natural order is that you don't give the cat the fever. The cat gives it to you. We know that to be so from one of the great rock classics. Yes, the magnificent original version of Cat Scratch Fever. And it's a tremendous honour to have with us the man who wrote and recorded that great song in 1977. Joining us now, Ted Nugent. Thank you for that very loving, kind, generous introduction. And yes, I am your rock and roll daddy. It's a terrific idea for a song. And I'm just interested to know... Uh, is there a light bulb moment for that, or is it the sort of thing that is just like uh, bubbling around and eventually you stumble upon it? No, there's there's no bubbling around or stumbling in my life, I promise you that. <laughs> I've never sat down, Mark, with a pen and paper. I've never sat down and, 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 uh, and, and fondled my chin going, hmm, <laughs> what shall I write about today? Now, cat scratch fee, well, let's spend the night together. Now, but I went, and it literally blew up off my hands backstage before I was going on, on to do my concert that night back in 76 or so. And one of the guys went, What's that? What was that, Ted? And I went, I don't know, but it's cool as hell. <laughs> And just coincidentally, my wife at the time had bought some antique medical books, and we opened up the page one day, and there was a disease called cat scratch fever, and my mind immediately went back to, and I went, my God, the cadence of those lyrics certainly work with that bastardized honky-tonk lick. Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating me. So basically, the lick came first. All and of then, always come first. And yeah. then the medical dictionary, you thought, uh, you, yeah. s- you find a disease <laughs> that goes with that lick. Yes! <laughs> Is that awesome? Great lick, 
<laughs> then you have a great medical dictionary. You find the right disease <laughs> to fit the lick. That is... <laughs> well, here's the bottom line. I don't know where they come from, but they sure do come. Which, by the way, it wasn't just the clever term, cat scratch fever from medical dictionary. Yeah. I had a certain relationship with feral cats on my first farm in Michigan. Oh. Um, and, and so there was a, a, a collision, a, a, a confluence, shall we say, of medical environment control um, that went into that song, which kept it a little bit more edgy. Hmm, varmint control. I'd bet on Ted against those Bronx Zoo tigers. When I was uh, making my cat album, I had a request to do Cat Scratch Fever, which wasn't on the set list for two reasons. First, uh, it's way out of my comfort zone. I'm an easy-listening wimp, not a hard rock guy. And second, there have been very many cover versions of Cat Scratch Fever over the years, and Ted Nugent has been merciless about them. He dismissed uh, Motorhead's version, and he said Pantera's had no soul, no balls, no feel. So it didn't sound like he was pining uh, for a Canadian show tune queen to have a go at it. But as I said, I was asked to do it, and I don't like to shirk a challenge, and I listened to it, and the only substantive advice I gave to our peerless arranger, Kevin Amos, was that guitar lick? Uh, use the furthest thing away from an electric guitar you can find when you get to that. I'm not competing with Ted on that thing. So here's our Cat Scratch Fever, and Miss Beth Simmons will play us in. I don't know where they come from, but they sure do come. I hope they're coming for me. And I don't know how they do it, but they do it good. And they do it for free. They give me cat scratch fever. Cat scratch fever. Cat scratch fever. Ow! Cat scratch fever. First time that I got it, I was ten years old. I got it from the kitty next door. I went to see the doctor, I said, give me the cure. And now I got it some more. They give me cat scratch fever. Cat scratch fever. Cat scratch fever. Ooh, cat scratch fever. It's nothing dangerous, I feel no pain I've got to ch-ch-ch-ch-change You know you got it, you're going insane It starts a grown man crying, crying, crying Baby, won't you make my bed? They're getting it from me And they know just where to go When they need their loving man And I do it for free I give them cat scratch fever 
Cat scratch fever. Cat scratch fever. I think I got it some more. I think I got it some more. I know I got it real bad. A song from Me to You with Kevin Amos and the band. Sort of Ted Nugent meets Peggy Lee, Cat Scratch Fever. And that's basically a first take because at the end of that lung busting solo, our trumpeter, our poor trumpeter, he's brilliant on that. But Russell Bennett uh, toppled backwards and was fortunately caught by Gordon, our trombonist. What did Ted make of it? Well, after he'd recovered, he liked it more than Motorhead or Pantera. Quote, Mark Stein nails the soulfulness of my classic song. Killer band, killer arrangement, killer attitude, unquote. I'll take that, Ted. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Todd Lewis, a Virginia member of the Mark Stein Club, writes on this first anniversary of the burning of Notre Dame de Paris. I remember quite clearly the great feeling of melancholy that swept over me when I first heard that Notre Dame was on fire. It was because it was one of the remnants of our cultural inheritance going up in smoke. The secularists think you can build a culture on sand, but you can't. The great cathedral is not the object of faith in the individual in its most elemental living form. The Spirit of God does not dwell in temples of stone. However, the cathedral does represent the nexus of faith and culture. I believe the church has been rapidly losing this concept, especially since the mid-19th century. To the modern church, the world and culture have, rather ironically in terms of Enlightenment thinking, become the Titanic and the church merely represents the deckhands trying to shove people into the lifeboats. It rarely occurs to the church that we should replace the arrogant, presumptuous and inattentive crew of the great ship with the wise and the godly and set about steering it safely through dangerous waters. The people of 1160 left us a monument to tell us that they believed faith and culture were entirely and inextricably intertwined. Maybe we even think of them as superstitious fools and not adequately serious about scientific things and the alleged greatness of man's reason detached from divine revelation. But even the church has detached culture from divine revelation. Many now call the gospel the, quote, gospel of personal salvation, not the gospel of the kingdom of God. The concept of the authority of Christ over all things other than our personal well-being has been projected to mean something otherworldly and ethereal. This is not biblical. The world is the focus of God's design. Heaven and earth are to be one. Those are the words of Stein Club member Todd Lewis, and I read them out because I think they make a very profound point uh, that I would just like to make one small addition to. Todd talks about, quote, the nexus of faith and culture. That nexus is the pinnacle of Western achievement in art, music, architecture, uh, Raphael's Madonna, Michelangelo's David, Handel's Messiah, Bach's Passions, 
Silent Night, all of which, by the way, are banned in the soul-dead American schoolhouse, as you'll know if you've gone to any of their wretched holiday concerts in recent years. Or the Cathedral at Chartres, a town of, um, what, 40,000 people today, something like that, but that is the site of one of the most magnificent buildings on earth and built to the glory of God. The men who make buildings, music, paintings, statues today are either indifferent or hostile to God with consequences uh, one can see and hear in their barren, tinny works. But the church, too, has, as Todd says, essentially accepted the secular world's estimation of God and turned faith into a retreat from culture which consequences can also be seen. That implicitly uh, signs on to the shriveling definition of so-called freedom of religion, that God is something you're free to do for an hour or two on a Sunday morning, but he no longer walks in the public square. Uh, This is a tragedy, and as Todd notes, there is blame on all sides. Mark Stein's Last Call Mark Levine, the New York health commissar, last heard from urging the citizenry to show how non-racist they are by going out in the streets and partying for Chinese New Year. Mark Levine yesterday revised the city's death toll up to just under 10,500 or getting on to four times the death toll on September 11, 2001. Many in New York experienced both 9-11 and the coronavirus. Among them was this emergency medical technician with the city's fire department. Hi, my name is Greg Hodge, and I'm a watch commander in New York City Emergency Management. The fire department was one of the few government bright spots on 9-11, charging into the towers to do their job at a time when so many of the glamorous agencies failed to do theirs. Gregory Hodge was a first responder in the rescue and recovery effort that day, 18 years ago, helping to save lives. He stayed with the fire department, graduating to watch commander, running a 24-hour emergency management center. Well, we call Watch Command the Batcave. We monitor everything that goes on in the city, Uh, every kind of natural and man-made disaster, any kind of catastrophe, anything that has a potential to New York City. We have privy and and, and we watch this, we we listen for it. With Watch Command, uh, I guess the the main thing that the city should be at, at, at ease with is that we monitor everything. He called it the Batcave, but he was thinking of Wayne Manor, not Wuhan's Manners and Morris. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 59, EMT Gregory Hodge of the Fire Department of New York. John Horton Conway was born on a boxing day in Liverpool and decided early on he wanted to be a mathematician. A bit too early on for his classmates and teachers at the local primary school. He was a delicate, somewhat effeminate boy, so one master started calling him Mary, and it stuck. 
On the interminable west-east railway journey to Cambridge University, Mary decided to reinvent himself. The shy introvert would become a boisterous extrovert. At university and afterwards, he pulled it off so spectacularly that he became known as, quote, the world's most charismatic mathematician. And so he made his mathematics charismatic. Number theory, coding theory, knot theory, finite groups. A profile in The Guardian called him, quote, a cross between Archimedes, Mick Jagger and Salvador Dali, which nobody had thought to try before. Along the way, he invented a mathematical game, Conway's Game of Life, a cellular automaton that spurred the launch of a new field of mathematics, that of cellular automata. And yet, and yet, sometimes you can have too big a hit. Conway didn't exactly want to go back to being Mary of the Fourth Form, but he began to feel that Conway's game of life was a game that was swallowing Conway's life. Well, I used to say, and I'm still inclined to say occasionally, that I hate it, that I hate the game of life. The reason why uh, I felt like that was that whenever, you know, my name was mentioned in respect of some mathematics, it was always the game of life. And I don't think the game of life was very, very interesting. I don't think it was worth all that. I've done lots of other mathematical things. And so I found the game of life was sort of overshadowing much more important things, and I did not like it. Now, well, I'm getting old. Uh, my capacity for hatred is getting less, I suppose. Um, and it, it was an achievement, and I'm quite proud of it. Um, I just want, don't want to talk about it all the time. <laughs> the game goes on, but not the life. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 83, John Horton Conway. Another participant in the game of life Eliyahu Bakshi Doran. I noted the other day the passing of a Serbian Orthodox Archbishop, but Harav Bakshi Doran, former Sephardi chief rabbi of Israel, is the first national religious leader to be killed by COVID-19. He was the first chief rabbi of non-Iraqi extraction in four decades, and he had an arresting way with words. In 1999, for example, Rabbi Bakshi Doron declared that Reform Judaism had done more harm to Jews than had the Holocaust. He was one of the first in this pandemic to support the closure of Israeli synagogues. But it was, alas, too late for him. Here he is, lighting the candles last Hanukkah. <laughs> Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 78. Rabbi Eliyahu Bakshi Dawn. The game of life, the game of life. If you lived in Massachusetts these last four decades, Bernie and Phil Rubin 
added to the gaiety of life a married couple. They opened a furniture showroom and another and then another and wound up with nine in the Bay State and elsewhere in New England. And then they did what a lot of successful businessmen like to do and put themselves in their own TV and radio ads. Hey! No jokes. No gimmicks. Oh, and no down payment and no interest for one full year on any of this great furniture. And Bernie and Phil's will even deliver your in-stock furniture the very next day. Now that's nice. No kidding. Bernie and Phil, quality, comfort, and price. That's nice. It wasn't long before everyone in the state knew that jingle. Go. Bernie and Phil's. Quality, comfort, and price, that's nice. Bernie and Phil's. Bernie and Phil's. Comfort, price. Quality, comfort, and price, that's nice. Bernie and Phil's. Quality, comfort, and price, that's nice. Bernie and Phil's. Quality, comfort, and price. Quality, comfort, and price, that's nice. Look, Phil. And it was Bernie and Phil's song. You could do a lot worse. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 82, fearless furniture salesman Bernie Rubin. Quality, comfort and price, that's nice. Yes, it is. And it was the world we lived in until a month ago. I'll be back this evening, North American Eastern Time, for the latest episode of our current and highly relevant tale for our time, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, its advice for 2020 from 1665. And don't forget, coming up this weekend, a special all-request edition of our Song of the Week, if you're a Mark Stein Club member and you'd like me to play a favourite song for you, leave it in the comments section, the song, your favourite version why you like it. And maybe I'll play it this coming Sunday. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.